1: Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Andrew Seaton, author of Spiritual Awakening Made Simple. In this inspiring and, above all, practical book, Andrew Seaton guides us to our true nature, the peace-filled observing awareness beyond the mind. The book explains how, beginning in our infancy, we experience a spiritual forgetting. The mind creates abstract interpretations of the world and who we are. These conditioned interpretations become self-fulfilling and create our life experience, our karma. Learn how to see the world as it is in reality, rather than through the distorting filters of the conditioned mind. Discover how simple it is to clear away the mist of the conditioned mind and instantly drop into the awareness self, which is who you really are. Importantly, This book shows the reader how to avoid some of the common frustrations and traps in spiritual awakening. Perhaps best of all, it offers a simple strategy for holding in focus the ways of experiencing everyday life as the awareness self. A simple strategy for spiritual awakening. Spiritual Awakening Made Simple offers a concise, unified, and practical formulation that will help you to awaken to your own true nature as peace, contentment, and connectedness with all life. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Spiritual Practice and Mindfulness, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Elizabeth Cronin, a host of the channel, and today I have the privilege of talking with Andrew Seaton about his book, Spiritual Awakening Made Simple. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks,
2: Elizabeth. It's great to be with you.
1: So I wondered if you could start us out by just telling us a little bit about yourself and about how you came to write this book.
2: Wow. Okay. Well, the first thing I'll I'll say about my lead up, my background, my experience and lead up to it is about this word spiritual that's in the title, because I've always since my late teens i've had a strong sense that, that there's more to life than just what appears to be there's more to me somehow than what i'm feeling than what i'm experiencing you know the, the, there's something deeper and uh, after i finished high school i i went to college to study a teaching and over those 4 years i read more outside the curriculum than I did within the curriculum because I found the the offered stuff pretty uninspiring but in the in the university bookshop I found some really exciting books and this really helped to to feed this sense that I had that there was something more that there was some sort of spiritual dimension to lot to life and but when I say spiritual I don't mean about beliefs I mean, i had this sense that there was something subtler about life and about me than appears to be the case. And I came across a couple of uh, books which really helped to, to feed this yearning to discover the truth about, about life and about me. And one of them was a book by Eric Fromm called The Art of Loving. And then I read another of his books called The Sane Society. And he digs beneath the surface. Really beautiful, inspiring stuff. And so the rest of my adult life in my career, which was mostly in education, but I had quite a few breaks and worked in lots of different uh, fields. uh, In my working life and also in my personal life, I did a lot of digging Digging around to find out, you know, what's what's real, what's true, what can help me to discover this more full blossoming of a human being that I sense and I hear from time to time, is is possible. So, in my educational work, my leaning, I, I didn't like teaching most of the time, I'll tell you, and 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 yet I kept looking at it uh, and. Uh, I mentioned in the preface of my book, Spiritual Awakening Made Simple, that I, I had a dream in the early '90s that said, "You need to do some more study into how the mind works." And a couple of years later, I did begin doing a bit more formal study, and I, my focus was on, you know, e- educational theory. Uh, w- what are people saying is possible, and what are people saying are the reasons we do this, and all that sort of stuff. Trying to make sense of it, um, and then I, I ran out of subjects that I could choose that that I could relate to and so I just gave it away for a few years and then a few years later I picked it up again and I finished that that uh, that postgraduate qualification and then I went on and I did a PhD research into the notion that was being debated a lot around the around the turn of the millennium um, the notion of uh, an educational paradigm change. There was a lot of debate. Are, do Are we, partly because of the introduction of internet and so forth, uh, people were starting to ask questions about, well, you know, if students and anybody can these days so easily go onto the internet and, and find out pretty much anything they want to find out, what really is the, the role of schools, which we used to think of as passing on the important knowledge kind of thing, you know? So, I got very involved in, in various roles in the education field. And and from the basis of those roles, I explored this. There they they were roles about facilitating change and facilitating debate about curriculum, the nature of curriculum and the nature of how we teach and, and how we support student learning and what the goals are of our schooling systems and so forth. So in the context of those various roles, I investigated deeply, you know, what what kind of change would be desirable? What are the things that seem to be um, the obstacles to the change that might be desirable? All these sorts of questions. And that was ended up being how I wrote my thesis about about exploring the idea of an educational paradigm change. What I discovered was, because the kind of question, the guiding question of my, my research was, does it make sense really to be talking about or to explore To be exploring the possibility of a different paradigm for education. I found out it blooming well does make sense to talk about a different paradigm for education because I I found there is no good theory to support the way we do it now. Pretty much everything that's pretty well understood about how human beings function well flies in the face of what we have children experience from a young age. And now, even the, the arguments are let's start them younger, let's start them younger, <laughs> let's start them younger. And it's not helpful. So, this was my kind of career tra- trajectory looking to what is a human being? What can we be? Not necessarily what kind of are we, but what can we be? What sort of faculties do we have that perhaps that we've been not noticing or not exploring or not developing? Uh, and how might what sort of experiences, what sort of environments, what sort of interactions might be really supportive of that more full blossoming of a human being? And along that whole path of several decades in my personal life. I had all my ups and downs, relationship challenges, you know, financial challenges, my own emotional challenges, some related to the work and various frustrations in there and all that sort of stuff. Lots of highs, lots of lows, some great successes, some horrible failures that really challenged my ability to feel good, <laughs> you know, within myself. Um, and in exploring lots of uh ideas and and spiritual practices and um, natural healing modalities and and philosophies and trying to suss out come on there's something going on here what is it and this long path that I've had I think actually somebody designed it. If I can put it that way, I don't mean someone, but I think the universe has designed this path for me, my both my personal path and the interwoven career uh, and um, educational, my own educational path, to bring me to this point where I feel so young. I'm I'm not young, but I still feel, I feel like I'm twenty, and I feel like my my life is now just about to really start, because I've got a handle on things through this long and quite difficult, often journey that I've been on to this point. I've finally been able to see, here's what makes sense. Here's how it works. Here's how it comes together. And that's why I've written this book, Spiritual Awakening, Made Simple. That's why I had to get that in the title somehow, Made Simple, because it seems so infinitely complex. Life in general seems infinitely complex when you start thinking about, well, what is a human being? Well, there are a million opinions expressed about that, and so it seems immensely complex. And you go to a library, go to a, especially a college library or a university library, and they're massive and they're filled with these books that people have written about how to make sense of life and, and have a successful, satisfying life. You think, wow, it must be that damn complex gee you know (laughs) and it's not (laughs) this is why I wanted to write the book because I've been able to cut through so many assumptions and and distorted perceptions because a lot of my my investigations looked into the very thing about What's the nature of human perception and what is the nature of human learning and what's the nature of what we call the knowledge that results from this? And what I discovered was that the the mind is not the reliable faculty we've been taught since babyhood to think that it is. It's a great tool. Yes, it is. But right now for the mass of humanity, the mind runs the person In the way, like I use the little phrase in the book that I've heard elsewhere, the tail is wagging the dog. The mind is something, a tool we've got to use. It's like our tail. We can wag it. We can use it in ways that are helpful to us and to others. But we make the mistake, our culture raises us in the home, in the school, in the media, in ever-present advertising, to think that we are our thoughts that the what we see in the the things that we what we see and hear and read is kind of the truth and what we've learned in school and in college and university is is truth it's not truth it's an abstract construction of reality that we've built in our minds Connected with, yes, our emotions and our senses and our experience and our memories and our hopes and our dreams and our fears, all these things come together to influence the mental construction that we build around any idea, concept, or person or thing, so that we've got to a point where what we experience in our life each day is not reality or truth. It's it's a construction of reality that we've built. It's a it's a pattern of conditioned interpretation that we've built from our childhood, and each of us has a, a, a unique kind of set of conditioning there's a lot of overlap of course and that's why we talk about this culture people tend to sort of be like this in that culture in that culture they do these kinds of things so there are a lot of overlaps yes but ultimately each individual through our experience from childhood we build up this um, set of conditioned ways of interpreting who we are and what the world is that are just conditioned interpretations we think, and we th- the, and what causes a lot of our suffering of one kind, whether it's just general dissatisfaction or the occasional uh, emotional um un- discomfort of you know disappointments or conflicts or whatever, or often I- even more intense kinds of things that that many people increasing numbers of people are experiencing, like loneliness or anxiety uh, or fearfulness of the future or depression. And all of these things that we think are who we are are not at all who we are. And I just want to invite your listeners, Elizabeth, to ask themselves this very simple little question, which helps to kind of illustrate and to to help them discover what I'm talking about. If they think back to when they were 10 years old, approximately, um, did they feel like they were them? At that age. And that's going back into the what into the second person. Did you feel like you were you when you were fifteen or so? And when you were twenty, did you feel like you were you having that experience? You were different at that time, probably. You're out of school, you're in jo- your first job, or you're at college or something like that. But did you feel like you were you? Yeah, I was me. When you were 30, did you feel like you were you? Yeah. Did when you were forty, did you so you've always felt like you were you? That's a constant. But have your thoughts changed some of your beliefs changed your ideas about you and the world have any of those changed well yeah yeah lots of them have uh have you yeah, had different emotions at different times yes i have have you been in different situations once you called yourself a student then you called yourself um maybe a graduate student or you called yourself a you know carpenter or a nurse or an accountant or whatever but you were you before you were an accountant so accountant isn't who you are, nurse is not who you are, if you're in jail, criminal is not who you are, because you were who you were before you went to prison. So the the, the self-image that we develop from our earliest infancy, and even prenatally we begin to get impressions, it's... A mental construction, mental, emotional, all these things tied in together. A body, body is also tied in with this because it, with each th- thought and p- interpretation of a perception, each emotion that we have, each memory, each desire, each goal or aspiration that we have, also tied up in that is chemical processes in the body that correspond with all those aspects, You know, not just in the brain either, throughout every cell of the body. So there are energy flows happening in the body that correspond, and that's why we can have a particular experience or see a particular person or even see a particular kind of person or a particular kind of animal, and it, it can create quite a, um, uh, there's a word I can't quite uh, reach, but a, 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 an intense Um, emotional or even physical response to that a palpable kind of a response and that's because all these things are tied up together our emotions and our feelings and our perceptions and our bodies functioning that's why that's how uh, health and illness and so forth tie in with our perceptions and our emotions and so forth because they're all part of a kind of a, a network or a matrix of patterns of functioning so The mistake we make, we're kind of raised into it in our our family life, in our schooling, in our culture in general, is to think that we are our thoughts, we are our concepts, we are and the world is what I'm perceiving, what I'm interpreting out of what I'm reading or what I'm seeing or what I'm hearing. But all of those things are interpretations Go back to what I was just asking you listeners to do. Think think back to when you were 10, 20, 30, 40. You, all, you felt like you were you, right? right? And you were. That was the you. You are the formless awareness that has been mostly in the background all of your life. And it's been mostly in the background because you've been making the mistake, like like everybody, like every human being learns to do until they unlearn it, of identifying yourself with your body, with your thoughts, with your emotions, identifying with things in the environment, things that uh, you perceive things, people, objects, situations, uh, occupations. We begin to see these things as being a part of who we are. Or I'm less of what I want to be because I'm not that yet or I haven't got that person in my life or I haven't yet achieved that goal of being a doctor or, or whatever it might be. But all these things are nothing to do with who we are. And this is what my book is about, Spiritual Awakening Made Simple. It's about helping people in a very straightforward way, a very methodical way to see how they've come to see themselves in the world the way that they see themselves in the world and then how to in a very simple way notice that those things are not true they're just interpretations or mental constructions so the thoughts that when when we experience something that we get upset about and uh, uh, we have a interaction with a person or we have a particular experience uh what troubles us Uh, emotionally is not what we've experienced it's that we have a thought that says what i've just experienced or what that person said or what i've just seen happen there is bad or wrong it shouldn't be that way and then we get the emotional response even into our body Uh, i mentioned in the book candace pert's research about about how something happens in every cell of the body (laughs) when we have a particular perception or a particular experience or a particular interaction with a person. Uh, And so we think that I'm feeling this way because of what happened, because of what was said, because of what I saw, because of what I experienced, or because of what I am. No. You're having a particular emotional experience because of a thought that you're having and believing about what you just observed or you just felt or saw or experienced. And so the, the answer to the things that cause us so much trouble and frustration and emotional turmoil in our life is to notice that it's something, it's a, a reaction that's triggered by believing a thought that something is bad. So two things are most helpful and actually quite simple when you're shown how to discover. One is that the thoughts that we believe can never be shown to be true, <laughs> and when you see that you can never you can never show that any thought is 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 true for certain, um, you get released from it, and then you get re- then the emotion that was triggered by it dissolves. So one thing is noticing that our thoughts can never be shown to be true, and the other thing is noticing that I am not my thoughts. <laughs> and as we get used to noticing our thoughts and questioning them, we increasingly disidentify, no longer see the thought as being who I am. Then what's left? First of all, the the emotion that's been triggered by a thought, that things are wrong or bad or not good enough or my life is insufficient in this way or whatever. And we notice that we, there's no way we can know that those thoughts are true. The troubling emotion dissolves and we notice that I'm here, I'm the awareness that's noticing the thought. Uh, then the we cease to be identified with our thoughts and our emotions. And what's left? The real you. Peace Filled, observing awareness that was behind the scenes, but no longer is now behind the scenes, where it's woken up because we've ceased to identify to make the mistake of identifying with a thought, thinking that thought is a, true, and b, it's me. When we see that it's not we, I can't I can't know for certain that it's true. Sometimes I can know pretty for sure that it's false, because if I can see one example that contradicts a thought, I I can see that um, there's no way I can know that it's true. Wow, suddenly then, such relief, feeling of relief comes and the emotion that's been troubling me, m- m- maybe for an hour, maybe for 40 years, dissolves into nothingness. Now, because our emotional patterns, our thought patterns, our behavioral patterns are patterns, They're kind of habitual ways of functioning that we've learned from really, really early on. When we question something that's been triggering a negative emotion and we realize that we can't know that it's true. And we realize we see that it's just a thought. It's not actually me. I'm the one noticing the thought. I'm the awareness noticing the thought that's come up. And so then the emotion dissolves and we feel at peace. That's not the end of the story because it's a habit pattern. So, a week later, maybe a day later, maybe a month later, sometime that pattern's going to get triggered again Uh, for a couple of reasons. A, because it's a habit. And another very curious reason, what might seem to some of your listeners, Elizabeth, as a quite curious reason why this might come up is because we tend to have this idea of who we are. It often operates, generally operates mostly Unnoticed, and that's why we use this term, it's sort of subconscious pattern. But whether it's conscious or it's unconscious, say I have a troubling thought, oh, I've done another big mistake, God, I'm so stupid. And it, it, it you know, I get down on myself, I get depressed, I feel, you know, unworthy, or this and that and the other. And then I, I from reading this book, <laughs> um, I've been led through this simple process to see actually. There's no way that I can know that that thought that I'm stupid is true. For example, um, have I ever had an experience where I th- that led me to think I was quite clever in doing that? Well, yes, I have had that. Well, then the thought that I'm stupid can't be true because you've also had the thought that I'm clever. Has anyone else ever said, you're not stupid? That was clever. That was, uh, I, I admire how you were able to do such and such. Most people would say, yes, several people, maybe lots of people have said at different times, yeah, you you were quite clever to be able to do that. So I'm stupid can't be a true thought because other people have said I'm clever. So these kinds of simple questions, uh, Elizabeth, are in the book, leading through people, leading people through different troubling thoughts that are quite common, you know, half a dozen or so, till they get the idea, and then they can apply them to any kind of emotional reaction that they might have to their experience or to their thoughts or whatever. And once they are able to see through the pattern, they question it. Peace comes, it's like aware presence comes into the consciousness. And this, you know, it's hard to use words here because this is you. <laughs> and so to say that you experience peace or you experience a more stillness of awareness, it's kind of, words get in the way now because we're talking about something which is beyond words it's beyond the conceptual mind so we're not really experiencing it because that would mean there's me and there's here what i'm experiencing but so but there's this beingness that i am is it becomes more palpable it becomes now what i'm experiencing aware presence and it's kind of it's got characteristics you've got to be careful about naming the characteristics because then the mind comes and grabs hold of one and then it debates them and it it says no yeah and if there's that characteristic there's also the opposite one and blah 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 and the mind but then you, you put the mind aside again in the ways that I show in the book and you see that actually one of these beautiful qualities of this aware presence that is who we are is peacefulness and, and this is what we discover when we question a thought that's been troubling us, we, what we feel is peace. And it's not just that we feel something that's peace, isn't that nice? The peace is us. And these sort of qualities are part of what is the essence of life, the essence of a human being. Peace, love, joy, playfulness. They just come bubbling up into the beingness of who we are. Uh, now, so you have an experience that triggers a thought, that triggers a, a troubling emotion, you question it and then you feel at peace again. And it's, that's beautiful. Um, but because it's been a habit pattern and because it's been perhaps part of my self-image or my self-concept that I'm a stupid person, I'm also creating, my habit patterns are kind of creating the situations that will arise again or I'm selectively looking at things and somehow drawing to to me or I'm drawing myself to situations where I'm going to have that kind of, uh, it's going to trigger that kind of thought, that kind of reaction again. It's partly because we it seems strange to say, this is what I'm coming back to what I said five minutes ago, you listeners will find it strange to say, we actually want to feel bad. Really, we want to feel bad. Partly, kind of yes, because it's part of who you think you are. If I, if I, if if stupid person has been intermittently part of my self concept, and then I take it away and I see that actually that's not that's not so that's not true. I can't see at all that that thought is true. It's not the end of it because it's been a habit. It's there's been this part of our conceptual identity, part of my conceptual identity to give this illustration, of thinking of myself intermittently, perhaps, but nevertheless, thinking of myself as stupid. So it comes up again because it's part of who I think I am. (laughs) And even if it's been unpleasant, if it's part of who I think I am, I'm a bit bit reluctant to let it go. (laughs) And that's why it it requires uh, being ready again, not being surprised and not being discouraged when that pattern maybe gets triggered again. And then again, you just use those same simple processes that I describe in Spiritual Awakening Made Simple to question your your thought and then it dissolves the emotion and then you feel come back to to who you really are, which is peacefulness. There's so much to say about this. When you come back to who you are, this peaceful, wakeful presence, it's not actually who you are as an individual person. Because the essence of who each of us is, is we could say connected. We could say it's one with the essence of life. It's one with the consciousness, which is what underlies and orchestrates all of life. And so when we come back to this stillness and peace, and sometimes playfulness, we uh, what we come back to is a connection with life that's flowing through us as us. We come back to this oneness with the universality of life that is the essence of who we are. And then what flows then, what can flow then, because we've questioned the, um, the impediments that our, that our mind has been placing in the way, these hab- habitual thoughts and cons- concepts and emotional patterns that have been dominating our consciousness, when we dissolve those, what can flow is the universality of consciousness, intelligence, life, that we are in our essence. It can flow through us. Then comes intuition, creativity, um a sense of how it would be satisfying to proceed with your life that doesn't come from your conceptual mind, doesn't come from your conditioned thinking, it comes from the essence of life, and you, in that way, then you become more and more an awake expression of the intelligence that's underlying all of life.
1: So it does sound like it's a simpler way of living, but what you describe is our, the patterns, the habits that we've developed. Breaking free from that seems complicated.
2: Yes. And the operative word in what you just said is seems. <laughs> it seems complicated. Um, now, to whom does it seem complicated the mind everything is complicated to the mind and the mind loves that uh E-Ekatolli once said the mind loves a problem like a dog loves a bone why does it love a problem because it has a sense of its own uh, identity as being a discrete identity, the the self, the conceptualized sense of self takes on this um, facade of being an entity. It's actually not an entity. Uh, our self-image, our self-concept is not actually an entity, but it comes to kind of operate almost as if it is and, and to feel as though it is. But it's, it's purely made up of ideas that we've believed. The self-concept the self or the self-image is made up of ideas that we've believed about who we are. Now, to continue to exist as this constructed sense of self, it needs to, to continually be building itself. How does it do that? By, by running all the time. In every waking hour, if the mind can be running and working on something, it's so easy for it to dominate our consciousness and to maintain this sense that it exists as as who we are. Uh, So the the mind loves to engage in in things that are complex. That's the world of the mind. And uh, I say in the book, in chapter seven, I describe half a dozen traps that people very commonly get caught in along the road of trying to wake up to who they truly are. And I I was able, also <laughs> able to write about these traps partly because I got caught up in all of them at different stages or at different and multiple times in different, <laughs> different ones at different stages and so forth. Now, the first trap that I describe in the book is called the complexity trap. And... The complexity trap is this tendency, if we let our mind try to figure out how can I become more authentically who I truly am? How can I become more present? How can I dissolve all the conditioning You know that's really kind of false and that's actually getting in the way of me feeling and expressing the joy and the love uh, that is life? Well, the mind loves nothing more than to be given that job. Of course, it doesn't want us to complete the job because that means the end of the illusion that we are the conceptual self. But if the mind if we give the job of spiritual awakening to the mind, it loves it because it's it's immensely complex and it can just kick its heels up. And frolic in this world of com- conceptual complexity. So, considered by the mind, the subject of spiritual awakening is immensely complex. Because, for two reasons, and I explained, I mentioned in the, in the book, there's two reasons why it, it seems immensely complex. One is that in the realm of mind, the conceptual mind, it's full of conceptual opposites. So for every idea or concept, there can be infinite permutations of other ways of looking at that thing. And that's why uh, scientific debates and (laughs) political debates and other kinds of major debate kind of fields in our culture are endless they 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 will remain endless while they remain the domain primarily of the mind because nothing can be proven no thought can be proven true i explain this in the book ai explain it in step by step in a simple and methodical way how we interpret what we perceive, and various kinds of learning give rise to what we call knowledge, but actually is just a, a an abstract construction of the mind-body system. But I also cite other people who've investigated, you know, philosophers of science and philosophers of knowledge, uh, who who both in the East and the West and anciently and in modernity have so often said, no conceptual idea can ever be proven to be true with certainty. We can only prove them to be false. Uh, and I explain in nice, simple terms how people can can see that plain and simple for themselves, and it helps to unhook them from their kind of addiction to the mind, to looking mentally to try and, you know, be certain about, about different things. And I also explain how it is that the mind can be a valuable tool. When I throw that back in again, yes, Because the mind can give us conceptual knowledge which can have a certain provisional instrumental value, particularly in practical fields, this is certainly the case. But even in those fields, mind doesn't give us mm, uh, uh, knowledge of reality as, as though it's a copy of the reality. It doesn't mirror reality. It doesn't give us truth. It only gives us maybe a working model that can be helpful in certain limited contexts. A nice analogy is to say that a map is not the territory that it represents. It can be useful, but it's not remotely the same as being the territory that it represents. And none of our conceptual knowledge is what it represents. It's just tentative efforts to get a working kind of a handle on certain things for our practical purposes.
1: Would you say, though, then, because I'm thinking we, in reading the book, I use my mind to read your book. And yes. I use associations to the things that you're saying in the book. My mind is habitually connecting with oh I think that's true this doesn't right I'm, I'm responding to your book yes and and what you just said about like especially um, subject areas like if you're in medicine or something right they they do know certain things and what you are saying though is that what we know we know from observing patterns but we, we don't know for sure that it applies at any particular I guess what I'm trying to get at is that it seems like we need to access our true sense of ourselves somehow through our mind when our mind is actually working in a way that acts opposite.
2: Yes. Um, now, the mind can really go to town trying to um, categorize and define all of these modes of, of functioning. So as I caution people, in the introduction to the book. We don't want to get caught up in playing the mind's games too much. But the point you raise is important and valid. What troubles us is the conditioned mind. Okay. The part now, of the mind. We, we, a lot of people will think that the conditioned mind, okay, well, there's 5% that's conditioned and I want to make sure I get rid of that. The, the surprising truth is that more like ninety or ninety-five percent of our functioning is conditioned, uh, and m- most of our mental functioning is is, is conditioned.
1: Um,
2: the mind doesn't it feel thrilled to be <laughs> to have that pointed out, perhaps, but most of our mental functioning uh, is uh, conditioned. Now, this is not to say, as you pointed out, Elizabeth, when you read the book, you're using your mind. Uh, and it's having various responses to what's being read. Some of those responses uh, and interpretations are coming from the conditioned mind. Um, that's, in, that's inevitable. It's certainly true. Now, um, But there's also the natural mind which we uh, we could term we could use a term there's you know they're not here's the this bucket and here's this bucket they're not like that these these are still just concepts to help us to kind of uh, navigate a, a woolly kind of an area of our consciousness really is what we we're talking about here but yes so there's we want to be cautious about the conditioned mind and where we become aware of it operating and a ma- and a major signal flag going up is if there's emotional turmoil or reactivity taking place, we can look more closely then. It's likely that some sort of conditioned, you know, patterns of thinking or going are going on here. But as I say in the book, once we disidentify from our thoughts and our emotions and our perceptions, and we become more clear about this sense of our own beingness as the, the peace-filled observer of our perceptions and our thoughts, it's like a thought can arise in the mind, we could say, but we're not troubled by it and, and it's not a problematic thought because the thought's popped up uh, and we don't need to either indulge it or follow it and we don't need to um, uh, you know, react to it or, or run away from it or, or suppress it. Because we're not identified with it. We're observing it. So the thought comes up and the the reactivity, the conditioned response to that thought is no longer there, no longer operative. So, yes, we're still using our mind. And this, I suppose, is the sense in, in which we could say that uh, we still use our mind. In, in fact, we use our mind immensely more productively the more disidentified we become from our from our thinking and from our conditioning because the mind has lost all its rigidity it's lost all of its resistances and all of its agendas all of its biases and it can see things more truly as they are. Continue to contemplate them, think about them, and see how what steps maybe could be taken in response to this situation that I'm in, given that this is the direction I'm heading in. So the mind becomes really the most fully the helpful tool that uh, it's intended to be, uh, rather than as much or more an impediment to our happiness as it is. Uh, a, a tool in the service of our happiness.
1: Yeah. I like this idea that, because you're talking a lot about our conditioned mind, you know, what what, get, what we get um, sort of introduced to throughout our life that becomes like our conditioned mind. I like this idea that there's like a natural mind in there. Like I think a lot of us think, well, we just have one mind. It goes this way and these are the thoughts and that's real and that's the way it is. I kind of like the idea of thinking that you know, our mind exists in our brain and maybe there's like one area of the brain that is conditioned and then maybe there's like another <laughs> still free, liberated, the original or, or the natural. I kind of like that because, and, and I think I, w- I was thinking I might invite you to talk about your acronym Dawn because that's a nice example of what I think you're talking about. How, how do people do it? Because what you're saying is that you almost need like your conditioned mind to hop onto to some idea and then the natural mind to say, wait a second, wait a second, conditioned mind. Remember, there's a bigger, broader way or I, that's where I'm going. And, and then how do you what does that look like in the moment? Right. Well, it's not like
2: we need the conditioned mind to throw up things and then we can respond to them or question them or see them in a different way. It's going to do it anyway <laughs> until we're uh, more awake. Mm. And, and, you know, that's a continuum, but there's no point handing to the mind the, the debate about the continuum. Let's just say the more awake we are, the less the conditioned mind is is throwing itself up forward and being problematic. What awakens? A good question. This is a great question, and it comes back a little bit to what I was going to try and respond to about your previous question about there's the conditioned mind, but now it's nice to know that there's a natural mind. <laughs> I think rather than getting too caught up in identifying with the natural mind, again, still think in terms of the natural mind being the more, the more, um, uh, uh, the tool that we have a faculty that we have that can be more helpful when we clear out the conditioning from the conditioned mind. And okay. it's not that there are two minds we clear out the conditioning. The mind can be the natural mind that it is without the uh, limitations and restrictions and, and uh, distortions. But the thing about what was, it, how did you express that question then, you know, about the, uh, about the uh, peaceful and noticing awareness? Look, right at the early on in the book i say i give some examples of, of awakened consciousness described by various different people who have experienced that and then i say isn't it interesting what we can see from these few examples are two surprising things one is that what tends to get in our way more than anything else is what we think we know And yes, you could say that's really our conditioned thinking. And the second thing is that awakening, nothing could be more natural than to wake up to the essence of who we are as wakeful presence, peace-filled, love-filled and so forth. So this comes now to, to your question. It's not that we need to look for it anywhere or cultivate it. And these, these misconceptions are rife in the world. Spiritual development, for example, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unhelpful notion because you don't need to develop nothing. You are who you are. You are the one self. You are the one life, the one consciousness that underlies all of life. You don't have to cultivate it. You don't have to study it. Uh, You you don't have to practice it. What happens is, if you notice that your thoughts are just thoughts and that you're the observing awareness, what are you left with? Awareness. You. Peace. Consciousness. Pure. uh, Formless. This is, you're left with? who you are in reality. So it's there. Uh, It's like, oh, my God, you mean I'm already it? I'm already everything that I ever wanted to experience in life? What's one of those? I'm just reaching down to get a piece of paper. I want to read a quote from the book, page one. All the peace, joy, love, and creativity that people could want are closer than we ever imagine. They are our very nature, merely veiled by what we think we know. So if you just follow the very simple steps, listeners, in the book, Spiritual Awakening Made Simple, you can notice that the thoughts that pop up into your mind First of all, they are just thoughts that pop up into the mind. They're not you. They just pop up. (coughs) Uh, They're not you. And when you question them, you, you notice, wow, there's no way that I can know for sure that that thought is true. They're provisional. If they've got any practical value, it's a provisional, tentative kind of a usefulness. It's not an absolute truth, truthfulness. It may be helpful to think, use this concept of blah, blah, blah. That's in certain practical fields. But in almost all of the kind of more subjective, you know, psychological or, you know, our life and who I am and my relationships and all this sort of how I'm feeling, almost all of those thoughts are unhelpful and uncomfortable. Uh, But it's easy to see. In any moment that one pops up and you get have an emotional reaction, it's easy to discover that there's no way you can know that thought is true that triggered that negative emotion and then the negative emotion dissolves. In, at one point in the book, I mentioned another little thing that people can do. It just, it just, this is not just the major events in your life that may trouble you. It's day-to-day little things that happen and, and don't happen through the day that trigger little minor emotions. A, a, th- a good thing, a helpful thing to do, first of all, when you can remember it, and if you put a post-it note on your computer or, or your desk or wherever you happen to be just to remind yourself from time to, some, from time to time, if a little, even a minor emotion pops up like frustration or disappointment, first, notice that you're feeling that. Oh, I, yeah, I am feeling disappointed about such and such. That that person said they'd phoned me about such and such. I felt it was kind of important. I was looking forward to it and I just, they didn't even phone. I feel I'm feeling disappointed. Yes. So acknowledge the feeling, acknowledge the emotion, but then quickly shift from saying to yourself, "I'm disappointed," to saying to yourself, "I'm the awareness noticing a feeling of disappointment." It's so simple, and yet it's so it makes such a profound shift because it puts you right back into the reality of who you are as the observing awareness, formless, untroubled, untroublable by anything, just awareness. I'm the awareness. That's who I am noticing this feeling of disappointment. And immediately this disidentification from the emotion begins to take place and it has its power is greatly reduced. And then I I describe in the book. And then look to see what thought has been triggering that emotion or that feeling of disappointment. Oh, well, the thought was, it's bad that such and such didn't ring when they said they would. Um, Maybe even just, you know, full stop. It's bad that they didn't ring. And that's why I feel disappointed. They said they would and they didn't. and, And that's bad. I was looking forward to it. But then notice it's the thought that's triggered the emotion. It's not what happened. It's not that the fact that they didn't ring that's causing me to feel disappointed. No, the feeling of disappointment arose because I had a thought that since they didn't ring, that's bad.
1: Right. Because if I had been busy cooking dinner and I lost track of time and an hour went by and the call didn't come and I didn't realize it, I wouldn't have experienced feeling bad. (laughs) That's exactly right.
2: Beautiful uh, example, beautiful illustration. So what we begin to, to realize is, and all of chapter three talks about this, that almost all of what we experience in our life is the result of stories we've made up in our mind that we've believed and they've been reflected in all of our perceptions and our behavioral patterns and so forth. And our life comes to be a reflection of the stories that we've got in the habit of telling ourselves about who we are and about who the world is and what people are like and women are like this or men are like that or dogs are like this or whatever, the millions of things. And, what we experience as life is the manifestation of the patterns of thinking and, and feeling and, and so forth and perception and behavior that we've been caught up in habitually playing out in our lives. So here's the beautiful thing about that, the beautiful realization in that the minute you begin to notice your emotions, then notice the thought that's been triggering the emotion and question it, like I show people how to do in very simple, straightforward ways in the book. It cracks wide open, this prison that we've been living in of our life being a reflection of our conditioned patterns. And I, I... I say in the book that some people refer to this as as being karma. Karma is simply that we experience what we expect. (laughs) Life is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And yet what we are experiencing from these stories is sooner or later, it's found to be unsatisfying or unfulfilling if not really troubling. The reason is it's only a reflection of stories that aren't true, that can never be shown to be true. And what happens when we begin to notice these thoughts, these patterns, these stories, and we question them, do I know for certain that that's true? Well, actually, no. When I look at it, it could be, you know, is that situation bad or what I've just What's happened to me just now has been bad or what that person said is bad. And I show in the book the various ways of asking yourself questions about that. Is it possible that that could lead to something good or something that could be seen to be good? Yes, and you can always think of something. So these things start to crumble. And what happens is that the true essence of who you are, which is this universal life essence, begins to flow through you and to form your life. And that's when life becomes oh so satisfying because it's not like the realization of a goal that the conditioned mind has put up and you've achieved that. No, it's the essence of you is awake and expressing in the world. Consciousness is becoming, is now, has become conscious in you and is the expression in the world of itself as you. It's, it's so profound. And yet, back to that word, it's so simple. The mind doesn't have to grab hold of this and make it into a big complex thing. Never give the job of spiritual awakening to your mind because you're not your mind. And you don't have to go looking for who you really are. You are it right now. But if a thought's popping up and it's in any way troubling or limiting to you, question the thought. What do you get left with when you question a thought and realize you can't know for certain that the thought is
1: true? You get left with who you truly are. Wakeful presence. In some way, what I, what I take from the book too is that trust that who you really are Will ask the questions.
0: Uh,
1: um,
2: well, again, it, yes, it, you could say that, but it might be, uh, <laughs> uh, it might be unnecessarily overthinking it. Okay. <laughs> it might be just ask the questions. Just. Ju- you know, rather than thinking, you know, I know that this is going to work out and, I, you know, I'll have faith that if I ask, you know, no, don't go there. Simply ask the questions. If something's troubling you, do I know for certain that that's true? You will, you know, you use the word trust, but you won't have to trust uh, that little um, strategy, if you want to call it that, that little process. You won't have to trust the process because you will know and i'll say more about this perhaps in a second you will know from the process itself that it's valid and and real because it feels real and it brings you peacefulness it's it, it's it it'll be self validating we don't need to go to the mind to play its games to say you know, I'll have faith that this process, will, or any of that, or I'll trust it. Just do it—a simple, simple thing. If it doesn't work, you've lost nothing. But you'll find that it, 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 uh, it will work B- because what's already there underneath the uh, troubling thought or the thought that's triggered some troubled feeling. What's already underlying that is the peace-filled observing awareness that you are and it'll be the validation of the process of questioning the thought because you'll be left feeling beautiful, feeling feeling peaceful, feeling relieved. Um, let me just throw quickly in here, uh, Elizabeth, um, something for your listeners that I um, mentioned in the introduction to the book and that is that it's not a book about concepts of spirituality. It's not a book about concepts of spiritual awakening. It's really a manual to help people discover for themselves. And there are so many things in the book, uh, exercises, activities, uh not innumerable either, but they're just simple exercises, things that you can, you can do, and also some personal anecdotes where I illustrate from my own personal experience certain things. These things will help the reader to discover for themselves that this feels right. Let, let them be the judge. As I say in the, in the introduction, the last thing we need is people believing more things. Don't believe anything I say. If it rings a bell of recognition uh, in you, then go with that. And and m- most people will certainly find if they if they do those simple exercises described in the book, they'll find that it does indeed do
1: that. Self-validating. Yeah. And I think it's a message that the what you're putting out there for people. We need it because it's not built into society.
2: It's the opposite message is built into society. It's extraordinary. I know. Um, it's so simple that it's, it's almost unfathomable that we believe f-
1: fundamentally the opposite. <laughs> you know. Or something. Pardon? like, it seems like the truth got buried or something. And earlier you were spending a lot of time yourself digging, digging, digging. Uh, Yes. Uh,
2: The truth did get buried. And here's here's the good good news. Uh, I did a lot of digging and some other people, of course, have done a lot of digging but your listeners don't need to do a lot of digging. If I can put it this way, you know, I started out at the beginning of our conversation kind of saying this, that somehow life has given me the, the long road of my personal and professional life to bring me to the point where I could write such a book. Why? So that nobody else has to have that road. It's simple. Anybody. Any walk of life, any background, any whatever, any current circumstances, it's simple because you are already who you truly are, which is everything and more that you have ever imagined you would like to be. Like you said, the truth got buried. What buried it? Just this thing that's built into humans to, to to. experience early in our life and throughout our life until we question it. And that is a tendency of the consciousness or the awareness that we are to get caught up in identifying with the world of form, conceptual forms, physical forms. We we early on become connected. We think that they are real. They are what's most real and they are, and, we, and I am, you know, these tangible forms. I am my body. I need to feed it. Uh, if I don't feed it, if I you know, if I, I won't uh, survive. If I don't get the love that I feel I need and the care, I'm not going to survive. So we build up all these patterns which, which one after another add on to and consolidate this mistaken identity that I am the form. That's what does the burying. Uh, or uh, the, uh, the image, the metaphor I use in the book is, um, I think, you know, layers, blankets of sleep sleep that are laid over um, the awareness that we truly are by the conditioned patterns that we take on by identifying with our thinking and with the world of form.
1: Yeah. So, you know what? I appreciate this. I feel like we could keep talking for quite a while and I've taken a lot of your time. So before we go, I just, I just want to say I appreciate that you're just putting the information or you're just sharing what you've learned because I, I think you just have to hear it and I think we just need to listen and that's a Wonderful thing to have a resource like yours that just shares something with us that we can you know take in if we're open and that's really important not to not to overthink it and not to try to analyze or dissect, but just to just just let it come to us
2: uh, yes,
1: absolutely uh,
2: Elizabeth and thanks for that the thing about the tricky thing about words and hence conversations right now we're having a conversation and people are listening in and the tricky thing about that is that words can never capture the essence of life or the essence of who we are and so thanks for making that comment that the the real trick here is not to believe anything that you've heard but if you feel so inspired Get hold of the book, Spiritual Awakening Made Simple, and it will be a process of self-discovery, not of believing or being convinced by somebody else's words or conversation. Let this simply be, hopefully, a little bit of an inspiration to have that simple process of discovering for yourself what's there, what's
1: real. I think it is an inspiration, and I I hope the readers are inspired I hope they're able to go out and get a get a copy of your book it's coming out soon be out in August it's July now that we're talking and and I think it will I think it will touch a a lot of people and I appreciate that you got to a point where you're able to write this book it's um it's, it's a wonderful contribution before we go, is there anything you're kind of working on now or do you keep, having done this, do you ever think about writing another book or are you just kind of catching your breath? <laughs> well, um, thanks for
2: asking. And I sort of uh, barely am catching my breath because things are sp- speeding up. In various ways, of course, with the release of the book Imminent, um, I'm starting to talk with a lot of people about the book and, and, yeah, things are starting to hot up in that regard. But as it happens, I am also cooking up some other, uh, you know, projects. Uh, one is at some stage I would like to um, create a, an online course that complements this book. Uh, and the other thing is, uh, yes, I uh, have another book that I want to um, write soon. Good thing I, you're. So, uh, so say again. It's good thing you're young. You're feeling young. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, And I I do. I'm here for the long haul. Don't don't make any mistake about that. I'm I'm going to have a long, long life. And uh, the book I'm going to write next. uh, The reason I had those slight hesitation in as I was as I was kind of getting those words out about my book. The reason I had that slight hesitation is simply because I've actually written a book ten years ago, soon after my I left academia and left the field of education. And I went and lived on a hobby farm for a few years and to start kind of unhooking myself from all my conditioning, you know, and from the <laughs> intrusion of of the world's um, programming and everything. Um, and that really did start to to help me a lot in, in my process of awakening. But around about that time, I wrote a book uh, about how parents can raise their kids to be more conscious and to take on less of the conditioning, which to a certain extent is inevitable in the nature of human life, but uh, how they can minimize the, if I can use the word, the the damage done by so much conditioning that's out there. So it's really a book about what parents can do. I I have in the past used the word to educate their children to to live a really conscious life spiritually conscious life i'm not sure i'll use the word educate it might just be how to raise a a more spiritually conscious child or whatever but that's going to be the the thrust of it so i i wrote this book i kind of self-published it but a because i had no marketing expertise but b more strongly because i just felt the time wasn't right i never put it out there and now I feel uh, – because I think now I can see in retrospect this book, Spiritual Awakening Made Simple, had to come first. Um, and for any parent interested in how they can, you know, better raise their child to be – to uh, to not lose some of the natural child-like um, – spiritual awareness not to take on so much conditioning the main thing they can do of course is to do do what they can to become more authentic and spiritually awake themselves as a parent that that and so it's kind of fitting in a way i think that spiritual awakening made simple came first but now i, I do want to re rework that book that i wrote 10 years ago into something that uh, parents can can use to, to, again, find something very straightforward and practical that they can do to minimise the conditioning and the impacts of the conditioning that children inevitably take on in our world and currently, unfortunately, to a very large extent in the schooling system that most of them are subjected to.
1: Nice. That's nice. How can people find you online and read more about you? Oh, thanks. Uh, well, I have a website,
2: um, Awakening Made Simple. dot org. Doesn't use the word spiritual to keep it short. Awakening Made Simple. org, and people could read the preface and introduction to the book there. Um, they can read a little bit about me. Um, they can read a couple of comments, early comments that have been made about the book. If they wish, they could subscribe to my newsletter, uh, which will just. Very periodically, mention you know things that I might be running, like workshops or talks or whatever. Um, and uh, if people are interested, I'm also they can see on my website that they can have a one-on-one support session or mentoring for spiritual awakening sessions uh, with me. That's just become functional uh, just very recently.
1: Nice, nice. So some great options. Thank you so much for giving us so much of your time and sharing so much about yourself, your journey, and the book. And I look forward to seeing what comes next for you. Thanks, Elizabeth. It's been great talking to you.